if uh, if you buy a house from me, I'm a builder, uh, and uh, I give you a title deed, and yeah. you pay me the cash for the house, you've got the title deed which shows you own the house. Yeah. And if I go and print another 10 title deeds and sell them each time for the same price to you know, yeah, 10 yeah. other people, then there'll be 11 people out there who think they own the same house. Yeah. And that is fraud. Yeah. There's no <laughs> doubt about it, right? Yeah. And you know it's fraud. Uh, but if you do it with money, it's legal. Yeah. Right. Under English law now. In fact, it's good practice. <laughs> uh, and in fact, it's good practice because bad practice is to do it 50 times. Right? <laughs> Hello, peace be upon you. Welcome to Rational Religion. Today, we are joined by a very special guest, Darek El Dawani. He is a consultant on matters of Islamic finance and the author of two major uh, books on the subject of Islamic economics and Islamic finance, The Problem of Interest and Islamic Banking and Finance, what it is and what it could be. Two excellent books. And we we read, you know, the problem with interest and we thought we have to have you in to, to talk about these matters because as far as, you know, as far as we're concerned, this is one of the clearest elucidations of the whole subject of Islamic economics, but more generally about how currencies work, how our economic system works. Uh, and we found it really useful. So uh, we thought you'd be, you'd be the perfect person to come in Thank and you. talk to us about this. So assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Thank you for coming. So um, the reason I think why we're particularly passionate about this is because, you know, young people generally are directing a lot of anger and energy towards capitalism, kind of cap classical neo neoliberal capitalism. And people want to dismantle the system because they're seeing the massive rocketing inequalities. They're seeing the problems it's having environmentally, um, the effects it's having even indirectly or directly on people's mental health, etc. Mm -hmm. So people want to get rid of the system. And there are two major systems that are proposed to replace it. The first is a kind of classic left-wing socialism. A lot of progressive movements have tried and you know, recently failed, essentially, in order to, to get that into power in the UK and in the US. And the second major response, which is very recent, are the kind of Bitcoiners, the crypto enthusiasts, who say fiat currency is the problem, is the problem. We need to get away from that. If we end the Fed, et cetera, then we can you know, solve lo loads of our problems. And our position, which we've talked about in some of our videos before, uh, but we want to kind of elucidate more thoroughly here, is that neither of these responses um, are adequate. And that is the principles given by Islamic economics and Islamic finance which can do the job and which give the answers that actually even the West is looking for. And obviously you don't have to be a Muslim to kind of, you know, implement these kinds of things. Could you tell us a little bit about the, the history of modern banking? How did it start and, and how has it gone since then? Yeah, well, uh, a long time ago, uh, of course, thousands of years ago, uh, people were using commodity money uh, to pay for goods and services. And this is something which carried on uh, until quite recent history. Um, it was only in the late 15th century and early 16th century in Europe, for example, that people started to depart from using commodity money, gold yeah. and silver in particular. Um, and so, first of all, one has to understand that for most of humanity's history, one didn't need to have a private institution uh, intervening in your trade. If you went to the shop, you mm. didn't need to get a third party to settle the transaction between you and the shopkeeper. Yeah. Um, so this idea of banking, which we have now, where we can barely settle any transactions without the intervention 
of a third party being mm. a bank. This is very new. Um, and it's something which, as I say, started in the late 15th and early 16th century in Europe. There was in Spain a, an early bank and the Netherlands. And then in the late 17th century in England, the Bank of England was formed. Um, and the the critical issue then was that because of the invention of this thing called a bank, uh, the nature of money itself changed. Right. When banks came along, uh, and this is a history which you can almost read in school books now, um, uh, without the interpretation I would give, uh, they give a different interpretation many times, but uh, the story is that banks uh, at the beginning uh, of their uh, existence in Europe um, would offer their services to people as safekeepers of gold coins, as safekeepers of money, of silver coins, gold coins predominantly. Mm. Um, and uh, that safekeeping service was something for which they might charge a fee or they might not. Um, one way in which it was done was that you would receive a paper receipt mm. and the paper receipt would give evidence that you had left, for example, £10 in the bank. Yeah. Now, the uh, history develops in that uh, people in due course, because they trusted the bank and trusted the receipt when they went shopping, they didn't first go to the bank and get the gold coins and then pay the shopkeeper with the gold coins. They'd actually just give the shopkeeper the paper receipt. Mm. And they'd say, look, there's gold in the bank. You know this banker. He's a trustworthy guy. If you want the gold coins, you go and get the paper receipt. Save, yeah. save me going down there first. Right? Yeah. And the shopkeeper would use that receipt similarly to pay the wages of his staff, and his staff would use that receipt to pay their rent. For, and so that receipt would start to circulate uh, as no longer a receipt for money, but as money itself. Yeah. Okay, so. after, yeah, after a period of time, people saw that receipt as money itself. So that was the history, uh, really, that uh, the bankers needed yeah. in order to base their business. Because once people regard their paper receipts as money, the bank can then change its business model and become a lender of money. Okay. And when you go to the bank to borrow money, the bank doesn't lend you gold coins. It just prints new paper receipts Okay. out of nothing. And what was the... Um I mean, the concern would be that everybody would want their paper receipts and therefore they wouldn't be able to give them all the gold at the same time, surely. Yes. So how do they get around that problem and what did they do in a way? Yes. Right. So, I mean, uh, the bank could print as many receipts as it wanted, but there was a point which would come that it wasn't really safe for the bank to print receipts ad infinitum because every day there was a chance that someone would come back with a receipt and say, look, actually, I want my gold coins. Hmm. And if the bank was called on that promise and couldn't fulfill the promise, yeah. then the banker would go out of business. Okay. Uh, people would realize that the receipts were not backed by gold and there would be a run to the bank. People would run to the bank with their receipts to try and get whatever gold was. That's a bank run. So that's a bank run. <laughs> okay. right. So they would try, you know, the first depositors would get paid out on their gold, and then when the gold stock was empty at the bank, any other depositors who brought their receipts would not be able to get anything, and that would be game over for them, Yeah. for the bank. Yeah. So bankers made a calculation about what sort of level of reserves they would need to hold in gold coins against the number of receipts that they'd issued. And in the very early days of the Bank of England, for example, their reserve ratio was 75, 80%. Yeah. It quickly declined. And in modern times and pre-2007, uh, 2008 financial crisis, reserve ratios on some uh, American banks, for example, were 0%. Okay. Uh, in, uh, in Britain, on average, they were around 2%. Mm, yeah. So for every £100 worth of receipts that the bank had issued, it would need to keep two 
pounds and gold coins. Now, of course, we have a very different system now. We don't have gold coins anymore, actually. Uh, we have a different system, but this is the basis of banking. That ba ba People think that uh, when you go to a bank, you borrow money that someone else has put in the bank beforehand. Yeah. But actually, uh, the banking system as a whole, the way it works is that it creates money out of nothing and then lends it at interest. Yeah. And if you have this power to create money from nothing, and lend it in just you're going to become fabulously wealthy. Yeah, because yeah. you literally have a money printing machine at home. You literally have a and, and if I printed money at home, as I often say, then uh, it would be a criminal offence and I'd go to prison. So why should a banker be allowed to do it? Mm. And, and they're it, private institutions as well. They're private, profit-seeking institutions and we've given them the right yeah. to create money out of nothing. The bank of Tharaik, it would be illegitimate, but the existing banks are kind of, you know... Yeah, yeah so, 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 I mean, you know, the, the, there are ramifications, of course, you know, at a sort of legal, philosophical, religious level as to, you know, whether some people should have the right to create money from nothing and why everybody else has to work for money. You know, yeah. Why, why do we have to work for a living if we can... And generally, society said, look, you know, actually, we don't want to work for a living. Why don't we just print money ourselves and lend it? And so the banking sector has grown like some kind of cancer... Hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, people like Stiglitz, well, Stiglitz were talking about this pre-2007 and they were saying uh, the American uh, banking sector is accounting for 30% of all profit made in the United States. Hmm. This is a massive growth over, you yeah. know, a couple of hundred years. And really, you know, the financial sector should, you know, technically really just be a facilitator, if anything, a lubricant on the rest of the economy. It should be supporting the real economy rather than being a dominating force or even a parasite on the real economy. Right. And as Abraham Lincoln said, that's uh, money should be the servant of humanity, not its master. Yeah. Um, yes. I'm not surprised you made a more pithy quote than I did. But. <laughs> <laughs> so going back a step, so we have the development of the banking industry um, through effectively, you know, people who are taking gold and giving receipts. So they're giving warehouse receipts to warehouse people's precious metals, in effect, yeah. right? Um, and they come to realize eventually that actually people aren't asking for their gold each time. It's easy for them to trade the receipts. Nobody's, people aren't going to call all the receipts in at the same time, so we can print more receipts and get away with it. Yes. Basically. And, and that means that if somebody, for example, if you've got a 10% reserve ratio at the bank, if you put... Ten pounds of gold coins in the bank. The yeah. bank can then create a hundred pounds for lending. Yeah. At let's say ten percent interest. Yeah. So the bank gets ten pounds of interest per year just because you put ten pounds in the bank. Yeah. yeah. So every year the bank makes an amount of gross profit equal to what you put in the bank if interest rates are ten percent and the reserve ratio is ten percent. So mm. if you think about that, you know the, the amount of profit that's possible to make yeah. from the banking system uh, looking at this issue with its reserve ratios and its interest rates as they have been in the past with interest rates on credit cards or some loans at 15%, 20%, uh, and reserve ratios being very, very low, 2 or 3%, then the amount of profit that the banks can make annually out of us making that collective decision to put gold coins in the bank Hmm. That is a truly huge profit opportunity. So, so go, go. can I can I just clarify one thing? Because I think a lot of people will be asking: Isn't there a real aspect of legitimacy to some of that operation? The idea that look, I don't want to be carrying around all my gold coins. It's you know you have to weigh them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What's wrong with the idea of receipts in themselves? Do you have an issue with the idea of a receipt being used or tokens being used, or do you have an issue with something else? In that no, process? I mean I think in terms of uh, the service of 
looking after people's valuables, keeping them safe in a vault, giving financial advice, helping people with technology, whether it's basic technology like checks or whether it's advanced technology like internet banking or visa cards, that kind of thing. Um, If one uh, sees banking as a service provision and a fee is charged in return for that service, Mm. then... I have no problem at all with that. Uh, yeah. One should be paid for a service. And indeed, people don't want to carry, uh, if, there, if there's, for example, a safe way of, of using your gold coins, and that way involves using a credit card, or not a credit card, let's say a debit card, which affects transfer of gold in a safe fault so that you don't need to carry it around and you've got a pin number for your card so yeah. if it's lost then nobody else can use it all that's fine i mean it's a very good idea yeah but this is not what banks do most of the time 99.9 percent of their profit comes from the ability to create money out of nothing and they create it as debt principally don't they so if we look into that more deep deeply uh, when the bank creates money it doesn't give it to you it lends it to you and mm. because the more money it creates and lends, the more profit it makes, it wants to lend as much as possible. Through the process of interest on debt. Interest on debt. So now we have a system where this very wealthy, powerful lobby has an interest in keeping you in debt. They don't want you to repay the debt as a society. And the more debt society is in, the more the banks earn as profit. Mm. So we have a culture, an academic system, adverts on television, encourage people to go into debt mm. and to stay there. Because yeah. this is how this very wealthy, powerful lobby yeah. maintains its money. Uh, and in fact, it's, it's impossible for it to get out of it because if money is created as debt and 98% of money, I think, in circulation is, is created in this way now, then actually, if you recall all the debt, you'd destroy all the money and you'd create massive, massive deflation. Yes, that's right. And in fact, nobody would be able to conduct any economic transactions anymore and the whole economy would collapse. So in a way, you can either pay your debts or you can be enslaved to a debt-ridden system forever. Yes. And those are your only two options. Yes. (laughs) So for example, if I'm a bank and you two are customers, I say person A, person B, and I I give that example in one of the the chapters that I wrote on this, uh, you can start with nothing in your bank account, but you each have a checkbook. And if you buy and sell something between each other, one pays with a check and you buy a watch, you know, for example, and take the watch and give a check for £100, then when you go to the bank with your £100 check, mm. the banker will credit your account 100 and debit yours 100 Yeah. Right? So now you're 100 in overdraft and you're 100 in credit, mm. right? So that's where the money has appeared because before there was nothing in your accounts. You both had a zero balance. Mm. After you've written the check and you've deposited it, yeah. there's 100 in your account and 100 overdraft in your account. So the debt has appeared out of nothing and the money has appeared out of nothing. Yeah. So these are balancing items on the balance sheet of the, of the nation as a whole. People who are in debt and people who have money. But you only have money because he has debt. Yeah. Right. And if you repay right, your debt, yeah. right, uh, if you lend money or whatever and you repay debt with money that's been lent from somebody who's in surplus, yeah, then the debts reduce. Hmm. But because their balance sheet counterbalances, yeah, yeah. so does the money supply. When the debt reduces, money supply falls. So repaying debt destroys money. And if nobody has any money, then we have a big recession. So we can't afford as a society to repay our debts because it would destroy <laughs> our money supply. Right? I mean, that, that's a terrible bind to be in for a society, but it springs directly 
from this system of banking that we have. Now, how does that relate to the whole people hear the phrase boom bust economy? Is that is that essentially it? Can you can you speak to that? Uh, yeah, very simply, it is. When banks decide to uh, increase their lending, they are effectively blowing up this balloon of money supply and expanding it. And when you borrow money from a bank, you don't borrow it to do nothing with it. You borrow it, for example, to buy a house. Hmm. And if you buy a house and everybody else is borrowing money, newly created money to buy houses, then the price of houses goes up. Yeah. And if the banks start to call in their loans, um, then you have to repay your loan. You sell your house, get the money, repay the loan. But by selling houses, we have a slump, right? If yeah. More people are selling them. So these booms and busts are largely driven by the banks either lending extra or calling in loans. Yeah. Uh, and that cycle of money supply expansion and contraction, although it's generally upwards, it's like a staircase going up, it has these ripples. The boom-bust cycle generally follows right. those uh, increases and decreases in the rate of So money before we, questions I think a lot of people have is, okay, well, we understand these banks, they create money um, and they create more receipts than they initially owed. Now we don't have a fractional reserve system because they just print money ad infinitum practically. Um, but what is the purpose of the central bank and how does the central bank differ to the private bank that you normally interact with and what's the relationship between the private banks and the central banks yes well today it tends to be the case that central banks act as a gatekeeper for the private banks uh, one has to distinguish there are many kinds of banks out there there the banks we've been talking about that issue checkbooks and debit cards and they're, they're commercial banks they yeah. are the money creators mm. uh, but there are investment banks that help companies issue shares and governments issue bonds for example and advise on mergers and acquisitions that's the investment banks and merchant banks who help in trade and letters of credit and international payments you know that kind of thing um, so there are many kinds of banks and the central bank is a kind of in most countries, an overseer uh, of all of those banks and the way that they operate, and in particular, the commercial banks, uh, and a regulator of the degree to which the commercial banks can create money, uh, of the interest rates which they charge, and so on and so forth. The Bank of England was initially a uh, private bank. It was given a charter uh, by William, King William, uh, because he wanted to raise money for, for, for war, basically. And, and the, you know, the idea was that the king gave a charter and got some money out of the bank as he printed receipts for him. Yeah. Um, but the uh, Bank of England has become, and since 1945, it clearly has been a uh, central bank, it has been nationalised in, in England. Um, and in that way, um, it, it becomes this gatekeeper where it oversees and regulates the private banks. Now, you can see that in a very benign way, and you can say, well, um, the central bank is there to make sure that depositors don't lose their money and that banks don't behave fraudulently and so on, which is true to, you know, in, in one way. Uh, but in another way, one could also see it as a kind of club chairman who makes sure that all the rich members um, stay roughly in line and the club keeps going from decade to decade, mm. and that this fraud continues uninterrupted and everybody who's in it in this club continues to make a shed load of money. Right. Mm. That's the less benign way of seeing it. But which which way do you see it? <laughs> well, definitely the latter. Yeah. I mean, it's a very good presentation job that they do mm. because they market themselves as men of probity, mm. um, and 
sometimes when they leave office, you hear a few honest words. We, we've heard some recently from one of the recent governors. Uh, but it's like that old English saying, if first men get on, then uh, men get honours, then men get honest. And I do wonder why some of these um, you know, very prominent central bankers weren't as honest as they are now when they were in office. Yeah. But anyway, PJ has something to do. Uh, and, you know, and then, of course, the commercial banks and the investment banks give them very fat salaries when they're retired and they come yeah. to work as non-executive directors. You very, very frequently see that. So you mentioned they, they keep the fraud running. Very strong words for the system that we have. What is the essential fraud at the heart of banking as you see it? And we, we have talked about the kind of, um, you know, you have 20 gold coins, but you make 100 receipts. Mm. Some people will probably say, that kind of makes sense. I mean, look, if people aren't going to be always withdrawing, then what's wrong with the bank, you know, making more receipts than the gold? If rea yeah. in reality, there's not going to be an issue with that. Like, you people will, will keep going. What's the issue? Yes. Well, it depends on the legal system that you're referring to. Uh, but even under the English law, I would say there's very strong precedent uh, for saying that the creation of five receipts for one asset, you know, five units of receipt for one unit of asset is, is, is fraudulent. And a very clear example of that is in the housing market. Uh, if, uh, if you buy a house from me, I'm a builder, uh, and uh, I give you a title deed, and yeah. you pay me the cash for the house, you've got the title deed which shows you own the house. Yeah. And if I go and print another 10 title deeds and sell them each time for the same price to you know, yeah, 10 yeah. other people, then there'll be 11 people out there who think they own the same house. Yeah. And that is fraud. Yeah. There's no <laughs> doubt about it, right? Yeah. And you know it's fraud. Uh, but if you do it with money, it's legal. Yeah. Right? Under English law now. In fact, it's good practice. <laughs> uh, and in fact, it's good practice because bad practice is to do it 50 times. Right? <laughs> right? So yeah. that, that, then, so the, the, you know, if I talk to you about being a gatekeeper of fraud, yeah. um, I'm not really, it's not really an opinion. It's just a fact that it is fraudulent to issue multiple claims of ownership on the same asset. So to two yeah. questions, really. So the, the central bank um, holds money of the bank. I presume the commercial bank is like a bank for the private banks, and that's how it acts as gatekeeper, presumably. Yes, yes it is. Yes. Um, and initially, they used to hold, um, they used to hold gold as well. They then they started interest. I've heard of the term central bank money. I don't really understand that term. Yes. If yes. you could shed some light on that. And the second thing I want to ask you is: is you talk about this fraud, but is it? Isn't it just? I mean, it's been going on for a couple of hundred years now. Isn't it more of like a benign fraud? I mean, does it really harm anybody? I mean, yes. He asked rhetorically. He asked <laughs> with great rhetoric. <laughs> yeah, well, Is it a benign fraud? Because, hey, you know, I've got a shirt on my back. Yeah. I'm, uh, well, there are people who say that it's actually a very beneficial uh, well, they wouldn't say fraud, a, ben a beneficial system. Yeah. It, it increases the amount of money available. Yeah. Um, and in some ways, you could say that it is because in times of war, for example, if the government wants to fund itself, uh, it can be very difficult for a king to go around the people of his country saying, give me your gold coins because I want to go and fight a war. It's much easier for him to go to the treasury and say, print some more paper receipts, please, so I can pay the army's wages. Who doesn't want more war? And, and you know, <laughs> war, war was very popular and uh, among kings, right? So, yeah. Um, 
You asked about uh, central banks and uh, central bank money. Of course, we, we don't have a system of gold and paper receipts now. We have a system uh, where our, and until, let's, let's go back 10 years or so, um, we have a system of cash notes printed by the Bank of England in this country and bank deposits. Hmm. Uh, the bank deposits are a database or a bank statement that you get every month mm-hmm. saying that you have £100 in your account. Yeah. Right. Um, or digital entry on your internet banking system. It's something like that. That's now what has replaced a receipt. You know, the central bank's paper receipt is what has replaced gold. So the king no right. longer mints gold coins. He asks the central bank to print paper receipts. Yeah. No, at central bank money, and even those paper receipts. Now the central bank doesn't bother to print all of them. It keeps them mostly in a database entry in an account in the Bank of England. And so if a bank such as HSBC has an account with the bank, which it does with the Bank of England, the Bank of England will say you've got 5 billion of central bank money, yeah, of which 100 million may be in cash and 4.9 billion will simply be a database entry in the Bank of England's account held on behalf of HSBC. Hmm. So this central bank money itself even is not in cash notes paper yeah. receipt form and in fact it's not gold so i mean it's and literally it's not gold it's literally created out of thin air presumably as yes. well as so a we we have now central banks who are creating money out of nothing and this central bank money is used by commercial banks who again multiply it by creating bank money out of nothing the bank money you think you've got when you look at your statement that yeah. is just a database entry now there's, there's no reality to it at all and of course you, know, you can say cryptocurrency is the same and maybe we'll talk so, about that so later. what's the what's the real world consequences for society for the environment for foreign policy of the endless creation of money yes I mean, this is a deep question. Uh, there are Thank many. You. There are many. Uh, <laughs> That's what we got in for. Because it, it takes us into multiple problems, um, which people often don't connect with with banking and money. If I was to say to you that the plastic in the sea or global warming is connected to this system of money uh, creation and banking and interest charges, then you'd be tempted to laugh if you were new to the subject. Mm. But I sincerely believe that the major cause of the environmental problems that we're having in the world and the wealth inequality uh, and the conflict, the foreign policy issues, the immigrants on boats coming into Europe, half of this or more. It's difficult to put a percentage on it. It's difficult to put a percentage, but I would say a majority. The biggest portion of that problem is because of the monetary system that we have. And why is that? What's that got to do with the printing of money endlessly? So, so one example is that, uh, let's go back to the golden receipts thing and start there. If, um, let's say there were 100 pounds of gold coins in, in circulation in the whole nation, mm. and I as a banker create 500 receipts, 500 pounds of receipts, and lend them to you at uh, 30% interest, something like that. Um, after one year, these five hundred pounds of receipts have to be repaid, and you have to pay me the interest charge. Thirty pound, thirty percent on five hundred is one hundred and fifty. Yeah. So you'd have to pay me six hundred and fifty. Yeah. Now the problem is that at the beginning of the year there was one hundred of gold coins and five hundred of paper notes, which the bank created. Mm. So there's only six hundred of money in total in the whole society, yeah. in the whole nation. Yeah. And yet now the bank is asking the nation to repay six hundred and fifty. So the point is that at the end of every accounting period, there is not enough money to repay the debts that are owed to the bank. Yeah. 
whether it's the government or the people or companies, in toto, there is not enough money to repay what we owe to the banks at the end of every year. Yeah. And the only way that society can react to that is by borrowing more money from the bank. So it creates more to pay so last year's debt interest borrowed requirement. creates more this year to repay <clears throat> the unrepayable debts which it loaned, loaned out last year. Now, this creates a very powerful and wealthy interest. Uh, I'm using that in the political sense, in the society, which is the banking system. Mm. And the banking system, naturally, because it has this power to bankrupt people by not lending them the money that they need to repay last year's debts. Yeah. It gives it a power of patronage to finance which business it wants to, to, to survive, and those it doesn't, yeah. it can call the loans back to support which government policies it wants. Because yeah. if it doesn't like a government's particular policy, it'll say, we won't buy your bonds. Right? And this power of patronage makes bankers the effective rulers, mm. number one. Number two, because society can't repay its debt, the natural reaction of businesses and people is to work harder, to earn more money. Because you think, oh, well, I have to get more productive in order to I need to produce debt. more to yeah. repay my debt because I'm not earning enough, which creates this <coughs> forced economic growth where people are only working to repay debt, not to produce things that they need, yeah. but to produce for the sake of getting the money to repay the unrepayable debt, so which itself never works anyway because... The problem they're facing is not a one of not being able to produce enough. It's a problem that there isn't enough money, no matter how much they produce. By design. By design. Mm. They could produce another planet Earth. And there would not be enough money. Because you'd have to have a planet Earth plus Mars next year. Mm. To uh, rape, to well, the, 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 the system has 600 of money yeah. and is asking for 650 to repay. And it's only the bankers who can make the decision to create the other 50. Yeah. You create another planet Earth, they don't need to create another 50 even. Mm. Yeah. Right? So, so in a way, <clears throat> interest... Is the is the incentive the banks have to create more money, mm. and the creation of money continuously ad infinitum to prevent catastrophic inflation requires a continual production of goods and services, which ultimately result in the consumption of our entire environment, yes. our entire lives, our mental well-being, um, in a bid to pro continuously produce to kind of soak up all the new money that's continually being created. Right. And when that new money is not soaked up in produce and production, that can, I presume, spill over into wars, into resource finding, into new uh, seeking new markets, or which inflation. have not been tapped. Or if it doesn't, inflation. Which mm. is just a tax on everybody. Which is just a tax on, on everybody people. anyway. Yeah. So, so that's partly, you know, the, is that partly the story of the global kind of inequalities that the continuing kind of, um, use of developing nations or underdeveloped nations to um, as new markets for our goods, you know that's part part of things that I've read about recently. Yeah. That that actually, you know, our story of development is not a story of development with structural adjustment programs of the WHO and the IMF. Actually, we've been the trying to world the world. Sorry, the yes, the the, the World the Bank. WHO. Yeah, not WHO. Sorry, pandemic. <laughs> my mind. The IMF and the World Bank. The structural adjustment programs they put in place have actually resulted in so-called developing nations actually not developing at all, actually going backwards and actually having their markets being opened up for products from the West, effectively, um, flooding those societies and preventing them from developing. Mm. And I guess the, the answer to all of that is that <clears throat> new money needs new markets because yeah. otherwise it will result in catastrophic inflation back home. Yeah. 
I think, so the plastic in the sea and the global warming from this forced economic growth that we, we are producing and our industries are active and emitting carbon dioxide and refuse of all kinds. Uh, this is largely driven by this financial system that we have and the imperative to repay debt. So that, mm. that's one of the... The issue of money creation and being able to indebt others who are then subservient to you because they have to repay you and if they can't, then what do they do? Right? Yeah. Um, that issue uh, is, is very pertinent in the developing world because governments who are in debt... Uh, to the World Bank or the IMF, often overtly uh, and, and sometimes covertly are uh, told that you must repay and if you don't, then we're going to dictate what your policies are. Mm. So the World Bank is very clear about this in the structural adjustment programs and that kind of thing um, from the World Bank and the IMF who, who basically tell uh, finance ministers in countries what they can and can't do um, uh, if they want more money and because they're desperate for more money they do what they're told and that happens to their own European nations in fact you know and, you look and now, to Greece yeah, and right. Yanis Varoufakis and his his narration of you know how effectively he he got told this is going to be your policy yes uh, the power of the lender um, so you you were asking you know about the the, the consequences of the system. Um, and you may also mention wealth inequality, and there is another process there. And the, the fact is that uh, when you go to a bank and you ask for a loan, um, it does really depend very much on how wealthy you already are as to whether you get that loan or not. Right? Mm. So um, you know, people, are, you can get a bank from a, a loan from a bank very easily if you can show you don't really need the money. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's the old quip, but it is true. Bankers will look to see, does this man have old master paintings? Does he have shares in his pension? Does he have gold in the vault? Does he have a big house? Does he have property assets? If so, yeah, we'll lend you, uh, you know, plenty of money. Two million, yeah, whatever, go and do your business. Well, why is that? What, what, what's about the rich people that they can Well, because the bank will take security on, on the assets and mm. it, it knows that if you don't repay the money, it can take your house and sell it and get its loan back. Or it can take your old master paintings and sell them and get its money back. Which is so, amazing because they, they, they kind of win either way. If, if, the, if you don't pay back the loan, they take your collateral for the money that they invented. And if you do pay back the loan with the interest, they, then get, they, the money anyway. they get the profit. Well, that's fine. But there's a bigger issue. And the, the issue is that when a poor guy goes to the bank to borrow money, the bank looks, have you got any collateral? Do you own mm. any wealth? And the poor guy says no. And the bank says, well, sorry, can't lend you. Mm. Now, the reason this is important is because if the banking system lends new capital to people who are already rich and doesn't lend new capital to people who are poor, then the people who get the new capital are the rich and they become even richer. And the people who are poor stay poor. Mm. And wealth inequality therefore grows naturally simply because we have a debt-based system. Now, if I can contrast that very quickly with an Islamic argument here about what happens in Islamic finance, the way that money is invested is not as a debt, it's not loaned at interest, it's invested on a profit-sharing basis. Yeah. So if I invest in you, if you're running a restaurant or a, a factory of some kind, and I say, I will invest two million in you and I'll share half your profits, yeah, then what really counts to me now is not whether you're a wealthy guy, but whether you're a clever guy, whether you've got a good business idea, whether the market is there for your product, mm. yeah, whether you're honest, all those things count, but not how wealthy you are. And therefore, my decision is not based on your wealth. Therefore, if you're poor, but you've got a good idea, I will invest in you. And that will directly address the issue of wealth inequality, because the poor people will now get capital to play with, and they'll have a chance to do business. So it ties the capitalist with the entrepreneur. 
and aligns their values and their aims and objectives. It, it ties the bank with the entrepreneur. The financier. The financier with the entrepreneur. And, and it aligns their interests. And so the, the point that I have tried to make many times is that this system of equity, and we have equity investment where you buy shares in a company yeah. and share its profit and losses, that system is much better for financing mm. uh, society generally and much better for addressing wealth inequality than this sort of... Uh, Parasitic a relationship. Yeah, knee-jerk reaction. Every time we have a financial crisis, you'll hear the Chancellor stand up and say, we have to get the banks lending again. Yeah. This is precisely why we have a financial <laughs> crisis. Right? Right. Stop it, man! <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, but it's like a knee-jerk reaction that you can't stop, and one Chancellor after the other will say it, and you can look yeah. back 50 years and see this. That direct, direct, direct. I don't think they really understand. <laughs> well, they may do. They, they, I don't people, think they do know. understand. Uh, Let's see. Let's see what happens. You know, let's judge each one on on, on his or her merits. But um, I think so far the history generally has been that they have not been willing to promote an alternative. Um, mm. We have plenty of new banks being proposed. We have very few new equity venture capital type investors being proposed at government level. Mm. Where, where are the big venture capitalists for the northern powerhouse in this country? Where are the big uh, mm. investment funds on an equity basis? They just aren't there, really. Not, not, not at the government policy level. They're not yeah. really promoting them. This is really interesting because uh, a lot of people have an issue with how, no matter how the real economy do, is doing, the financial economy and the financiers of the world are, seem to pretty much always be doing well. On the rare occasion, there's massive systemic banking failure. The government kind of just bails them out anyway. Yeah. So you have the financial economy doing like, you know, going really well like this, even if the real economy is tanking or, or doing unwell or not doing well. And what you're talking about with the equity thing and, and the fact that you can tie a financier's profits to the performance of a company in the real economy is that you're basically saying that the, the financial economy becomes unified with the real economy yes. and only rises when the real economy rises and only falls when the real economy falls, which means that you don't create a banking elite that therefore have a huge amount of economic power and therefore political power. You don't create this kind of class of financial overlords that can dictate everything for the rest of society. They're kind of, they are there, like you said, like they're just servants of the rest of the people. Well, that's one That's one consequence, yes. Yeah. And banks, uh, if they are lending to wealthy people or wealthy companies, they mm. tend to encourage very, very much bigger companies to come into existence. Mm. If you're big and you get more loans, you become very big. If you're very big and you get more loans, you become very, very big. Yeah. And so we, we get a society of uh, a, a very small number of very large corporations who are dominating business. Yeah. And everybody else becomes a low-paged, uh, low-waged employee for them. So, and so, so there are consequences to connecting the financial economy with the real economy, mm. uh, in in the sense of uh, the the equity within the distribution of wealth in the society and the kind of society we have. And I, I mean, I can give you an example uh, of something very mundane that people might not think of, but. Saturday morning, there's a huge queue coming off the, the main road to go to the supermarket. Mm. And there are roadworks to make that junction bigger to take that amount of traffic. Um, this is because we have a monopoly of five or six grocers in this country now. Mm. And where we used to have 50,000 grocers, we've now got around 10,000 in, in uh, the UK. Um, and of those 10,000, there are a couple of thousand that are enormous sheds. Um, 
at major junctions where we all have to go to on a Saturday morning to shop. So we have congestion. And instead of having owner managers running their own shop and knowing you know their groceries and knowing you personally, we have anonymous workers in a very large supermarket who are frankly dumbed down very often and don't know much about their business because why should they? They don't kick, you know, they get paid the same whether they care or not. And that kind of thing. Again, you might not identify that as a problem that comes from the monetary system, but this business giganticism, this monopolization of the efforts of society, this transformation of people from being owner-managers with some dignity and self-respect into mm. low-paid, couldn't-care-less employees in a very large anonymous company, that, that kind of thing is a direct result of uh, the, the money and banking system. So, you know, connecting finance with with the real economy is it's not just about wealth inequality it's about what sort of society we want to live in do we want to see a few huge house builders building 5000 houses in your yeah. local field or do you want to have 500 <laughs> small house builders building houses of variety in clumps of five or six dotted around several villages and see? the consequence just to spell it out for people that's all because of how money is created through debt and debt attracts the people with the biggest collateral. So people with the biggest collateral get the most debt, they get leveraged up the most, they can build more houses, and then they have more assets, and then they can get more debt. And then they, have, and, then they go and eat other smaller companies, effectively, that's right. don't they? For example, so you have the centralization where big company gets a loan from the bank and gobbles up small house builder, creates yeah. an even bigger house builder, well, it looks for one field to build 5,000 houses on. Identical houses. And then, and then and it wants an architect to design three different types, so the variety is lost. So you can travel to so many you know, British villages now and see that they're, they're like clone towns. They've got the same 20 shops. And this is something you know, that people, I think, have an instinctive feeling about, which is that they go into the city of London and they look at the old architecture mm. and they see you know uniqueness and they mm. see variety and they see um, subtlety between this street and this street and this street, and there are only three streets mm. away. And then, you know, you see the new builds and they're all identical. Yes. And, and so that's just, that's just one avenue. That's one aspect of life. It's one small aspect. And I think if you read someone like Leon Creer, who writes on architecture, he says that uh, the amount of architecture, the amount of building that was built pre-1945 in the world is roughly the same as the amount of building that has been done since 1945, believe it or not. Mm. You know, at a rough guess, he says. And then he goes on, he says, you know, if we were to lose all of the architecture that was built before 1945, people would oh. say, this is a real loss. Yeah. But if we were to lose everything post-1945, <laughs> and, and one must ask the question, why? Yeah. Right? Why has our architecture become so poor? And again, the financial system is... If you look at the cost, if you have interest rates at 10%, for example, um, and you want to build uh, a house, then around 60% of the cost of buying that house as an individual goes in interest charges to the bank on your mortgage. That 60% is the 60% that could have made the house beautiful, bigger, bigger garden, less density of developer, you know, less yeah. like sardines packed in and more space around your property. That 60% is the beauty that we've given away to the banks and got nothing for. Yeah. Right. Um, and we must at least ask that question, you know, why has our architecture become so poor? It is largely driven by financial considerations, partly because we have these few very large house builders who are 
they're uh, trying to reduce quality and uniform architecture. Uniform that happens. And actually, I was, that happens. it's not just architecture. I was thinking about movies. Everything. Clothes. Entertainment. Everything. Clothes. Arts. Yeah. Arts. You know, almost anything that you buy and sell, this has happened to you yes. because the producer has yeah. become conglomerated. And so this is a major point we need to emphasize, I think, which is that you know people do rail against the corporate culture and the dominance of corporations. Even in the news media, there's like a yes. handful of news media who then now dominate all of the news spheres and all the <laughs> yeah. news channels. Yes. And so that has a consequence for receiving information. And and uh, propagandizing proper how you're propagandized by by, by yeah. institutions. So it actually influences every aspect of human life, doesn't it? So in every aspect, you have interest-based finance creating more monopolization, creating uh, like you're talking about with the with the local communities and the, and the grocers, a loss of that sense of community, more turning us into drones, and a loss of artistry and you know having all these insidious effects on essentially every sector because of the way that we do finance at yes. the heart of it. Yes, the centralization, the dumbing down, the loss of variety, the increasing uh, control of a very small number of uh, corporations in, in every area of business. Now, before we go on to uh, spelling out the Islamic alternative, let's just talk about interest one final time in terms of you know, what are the justifications for it? Because a lot of people will they'll read economics at the university and they'll have these justifications for it and they'll say, actually, you've got it wrong. It's not that bad a thing. It really helps. Mm. So can you tell us a little bit about one of the common justifications? Even, for the, his, even historical justifications, because I think this has been a question that has yeah. been going on for a while, actually. Yes. In a way, it was more of a, it was more in the Western culture many hundreds of years ago when they yeah. still had an attachment to Christianity to somewhat. Yes. Um, I mean, nowadays we don't even hear about justifications in ordinary common day parlance. Perhaps yeah. they did in the past. It's uh, a kind of forgotten fact of history almost that usury was prohibited in the Christian world until the 16th century. Mm. Um, Henry VIII was one of the you know, earliest examples of a, a king that permitted it basically in order to solve his financial problems. Um, and he, he uh, at that time it was called inter essa. Um, there, there had been a... Um, discussions by the scholastics in previous centuries. Thomas Aquinas was one of them. And these men had, had opined from a Christian legal perspective. Um, and um, uh, so one of the arguments was that uh, uh, UK, the bankers came with this many times in later centuries, was that interest is the, the, the price of money um, or a rental of money. Now, I think to say interest is the price of money is, 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 is just, it's almost like a straw man argument because if I, if I lend you a £1,000 for £100 interest, then uh, you know, £100 is not the price of the £1,000. You have to pay me £1,100 back at the end of the year. So the £100 is not the, the price you pay for £1,000. The price yeah. you pay for £1,000 is £1,100. Mm. The interest is the profit markup, you could say. right? So interest is not the price of, of, of money. You could say it's the rental on money. And that's a much more common argument that interest is like rent on money. right? The £100 is the rent you pay me for the use of the £1,000. Now, the, the, the scholastics addressed that quite early, about 800 years ago it was written about. And... Um, one of the arguments that's uh, put forward by the scholastics is that if you rent a horse, um, you, I, I, I have a horse and you rent it from me uh, and you pay the rental for a day and you go away and someone steals the horse through mm. no fault of your own, who bears the loss of that theft? Uh, and the answer should be me because yeah. I'm the owner of the horse, right? Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, you've rented your uh, the horse from me and you've paid me rental. It seems like a fair deal. Uh, you pay a pound to rent my horse for the day, to use my horse for the day. It's the price of using something. It's fine. Now, if interest is a rental on money, 
Uh, then let's say you borrow £100 from me at 10% interest and you go away and uh, someone steals that £100 from you. Whose loss is it? And you ask that question. <laughs> and it's not mine. The bank will never say, oh, it's my loss. You had it nicked a whole lot, mate. They won't say that. Right? You are the one who bears the risk. So in that case, it means that you must be the owner of the money. Mm. This is the argument the scholastics made, right? So they smart. said that, yeah. It uh, is pretty smart. Right. <laughs> so, so they said interest cannot be a rental on the money, all right? Um, they said, if I give you um, £100 uh, and you give me back some money, the only fair price for exchanging ownership is that which arises under a sale contract because you own the money. Therefore, if you lose it, you bear the loss, which is fine. But then that must mean I sold you the money. I didn't rent it to you, I sold it to you. So the ownership transfers to you. And the only fair price for selling a thousand pounds or a hundred pounds or whatever is the same amount. I sell you a hundred pounds in return for a hundred pounds. Mm. Right? There cannot be any extra. In other words, no yeah. interest. That was the scholastics argument, right? So, um, so it's almost like saying one is three and three is one, isn't it? You know, it's almost like a in, in the it's sale a false contract. Suit. Yes, uh, to exchange. And so, I mean, the Islamic rule is very clear. If I sell you a thousand pounds, the only fair, the only price that's allowed, one which doesn't have usury, is to pay me a thousand pounds for it. Yeah. Otherwise, why? So, so this was an early argument, and it's quite a strong one. Um, but there came other arguments, in the, and, and, and typically these came at the time when banks were growing. And so, in the seventeenth century, there were many arguments justifying interest. And one of them I wrote about was the argument of Nassau Senior, who said that you get paid interest for abstaining. You know, I, I could have spent this £100 on myself and had a nice dinner somewhere or bought a house probably in those days. But I, I lent money to you instead, and therefore I abstained from enjoying myself. Mm. And in compensation for this abstinence, you have to pay me mm. to compensate me. Right? Okay, yeah. Now, this argument isn't around anymore, and probably because people realise that this very rich guy living in his country house who had tens of thousands of pounds, he, he lent you a hundred. He wouldn't have to abstain from anything at all. Yeah. Because he's still got you know this pile of money left. Yeah. Mm. Um, and uh, so but there were these, what I, I would cast that as a kind of straw man argument alongside the price of money you know, argument. And also it's completely false now because the money, the, the banks print the money anyway, so it didn't exist prior to you requesting and it from so, them. Right, so now there are things uh, uh, that are put out regarding opportunity cost. Uh, there's nothing, you know, the bank uh, has got to think about its depositors' money. They can't just you know, give it to you without interest. <laughs> well, actually it's not true because there is no opportunity cost. You create the money out of nothing. What's your cost of not doing that? Yeah. There's no opportunity before you create it. It well, doesn't exist. Yeah, it's just uh, that you created the money from nothing and you're telling me that, uh, oh dear, I've suffered because you didn't pay interest <laughs> as a borrower. Yeah. yeah. Well, if it costs you nothing to create that money, then the only fair deal to give that money to me is to give it to me at an interest rate of 0%. Yeah. So it costs me nothing to have it. Yeah. Mm. Right? So th this opportunity cost argument doesn't wash. Yeah, right. given the, the na nature of the system, but it's a very clever one because in other areas of life it definitely does apply. Yeah, right? uh, if I give you, you know, my Your Apple, car or whatever, or my ca car, I can't use it. There's an opportunity cost. I I couldn't use my car today because I'd lent it to you. Yeah, right. Um, so there are many arguments like this. The, the the key one that probably remains standing is the time preference one that nowadays this is the one you will hear most frequently it's the one you'll read on your MBA course it's that now is better than later uh, enjoying myself now is better than enjoying myself later. having an apple today is better than having an apple tomorrow uh, and if I give up having an apple today uh, in return for an apple tomorrow I want a little bit more of an apple tomorrow an apple and a half tomorrow 
for example, yeah. next week or next year. Right? Mm. And that's where this interest thing comes from, that compensation for giving up enjoyment today or, or having to wait, right? uh, that uh, now is better than later. Um, it's not quite the same as the abstinence argument. It's not that I'm giving it, it's that I'm having something later instead of now. Mm. Um, I have questioned that. I think that there are many examples of where we don't prefer later uh, uh, now to later. Uh, we may even prefer later to now uh, in some cases. For example, holidays. Uh, do you want to have your lifetime's worth of holidays this year or do you want to have one holiday a year for the next 30 years? Uh, yeah. Do you want to have seven breakfasts on Monday? Uh, or do you want to have one on Monday, one on Tuesday, one on Wednesday? Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, there are many examples where you are actually uh, it's more sane as well as healthier to have <laughs> consumption later than that. So I, can, I, I think that, uh, um, and, and of, I mean, particularly on environmental issues, you know, do we want to have a, a habitable planet in 300 years or not? You know, uh, we could say, um, yeah. no, uh, we'll give it all up. So then we'll consume now and pollute the planet and who cares about 300 years? You talk about this very well in your book, The Problem of Interest with respect to the um, use of farming and farmland right. and how overuse of farmland destroys the land for all future generations, but how actually interest incentivizes to do exactly specifically that. the destruction of land. It does, yes. Um, for future use. There seems to be, to my mind, the way you're speaking, you're talking about apples as well, and that brought to mind something you mentioned in your book about the very nature of money. Um, and that ties in well with the justifications for interest because they talk about interest and the, the justifications for interest presume uh, that money is in a separate class of its own, separate to all the other commodities mm. in existence. So, you know, one point you make in your book is that if I, you know, um, if you use apples for currency, your apples rot. Mm. Okay. If you use most things in terms of which are commodities, they eventually degenerate. But money is electronic now, and it was paper. Um, with an interest-based system, not only does it not decompose over time, it actually uh, reproduces mm. itself. And so this, in a way, uh, we've already discussed this to some extent. Is that, is, that the, is that really the heart of it? Really why, ultimately, when you have the production of more money, you need the production of more goods and services? which ultimately bankrupts society. And, and would you therefore say that the correct way of viewing society or the correct, the best way of viewing money is actually a system of money which actually decomposes over time? And I guess yes. this is getting into the Islamic question. What is the Islamic conception of money? Mm. And can you speak to that? Mm. I think the uh, <clears throat> issue that I've raised on the rotting of real wealth, for example, apples is uh, one of the more extreme examples, but even permanent things that we think, you know, permanent like houses, you know, that even they rot over centuries. You know. Yeah, or require maintenance. Uh, they require maintenance. Um, and what I've argued is that the financial system should reflect that fact to some degree. Now, if you have an interest-based system, you borrowed 100,000 to buy a flat or, you know, 500,000 to buy a house. The thing you've bought with the 500,000, the thing you've bought gradually decomposes over time. It's, I mean, it's much more obvious with cars, for example, and much more obvious with food. The thing you've bought decomposes over time. But the money balance that you use to buy those things increases at interest. And I said that this is a contradiction. Hmm. And many others have made this point, actually. I'm not the first to make Margaret it. Kennedy made uh, it very Margaret well. Kennedy, um, uh, Frederick Soddy, people who... Yeah. Uh, well-known in English uh, science, uh, you know, typically engineers uh, by background, they ask this question that 
the, the, the rule towards increasing disorder and entropy increases applies to the whole physical world, but not to money. Money can just continue growing at compound interest as if there's some kind of miracle. And the, the two should somehow equate. Now, the reason I made that point is that it's very well known in Islamic law that money suffers decrement. Yeah. Not compound increment, but decrement. Yeah. Uh, compound decrement, in fact, uh, under what we call zakat. The wealth tax at two and a half percent, and that just strikes me as is not a coincidence, mm. because then you have a financial system which, to some degree, instead of growing like some cancer out of control at compound interest, actually reflects what's going on in the real world. Because the point of money is to reflect goods and assets fundamentally. Yes, it's tying the financial sector to the real sector. You see, so it's just another way of looking at this. Yeah. The, the financial sector that we want is one which reflects the interests, again, in the political sense, uh, and the realities, uh, physical realities, as well as economic and social realities of the real world. And this system of interest charges that we have does contradicts that completely. It does not reflect the reality of the real world. To, to the profit of one class and to the detriment of everyone else. To the detriment of everyone else, yes. Can you talk a bit more about, you, about the zakat and some of the Islamic... Um, uh, measures that Islam puts in place in order to create a better society. What are the principles of Islamic economics? Because yes. a lot of people think it's just interest-free banking, but actually it's much broader than that really, isn't it? There's a lot of other aspects to it. Yes. I, look, it's well known for the prohibition of usury because it's perhaps the last community that's standing firm on it. Hmm. Even though you can see prohibitions and usury in the Christian texts, uh, in the Jewish uh, scriptures, even in uh, some of the Hindu scriptures. Really? Yes. Really? Yes, it's true. I've seen. Uh, well, I've been that's actually surprising. That's not surprising. That's and not I surprising. wouldn't. I wouldn't be surprised because uh, one uh, one of the things about the, the, these major prohibitions is that they've been uh, outstanding f for many eons, and therefore it's uh, it's quite likely that previous prophets yeah. relayed yeah. that fact to their communities. Absolutely. So, yeah. Um, so I think. Uh, uh, that's the one which we kind of stand out on because we're, we're standing firm on that and the Islamic banking experiment has meant to embody that. Yeah. Um, that's what it was designed or, or hoped that it would do. Now, if you look beyond that, um, there is a very deep body of contract law in Islamic finance which addresses matters of trade, uh, matters of investment, matters of charity. Um, and those three contract types, exchange, when I buy and sell something, investments, where I give you money on the basis that we share profits and losses, charity, where I give you a gift, for example, or where I set up a waqf, an endowment. Th those laws and rules uh, have worked together um, to ensure that where they have been implemented and enforced by a just ruler, you have seen actually a magnificent blossoming of society. Of course, we mustn't look back with rose-tinted spectacles at everything, but it's undoubted that you know to, to propel a group of Arabian uh, Bedouins to dominance of half the world within a couple of hundred years, there must have been some very powerful and strong and just system to, mm. to enable that to happen. There was a flowering of academia, of art, uh, military flowering, of course, which you have to have if you're going to establish an empire, yeah. trade, thought, writing, all of this blossomed. And, and you know, that, that was on the basis of justice. Mm. And if you look in the, the laws of 
financial contracts and contract law and Islamic law, you will see the, you know, the basic requirements of that and prohibition of theft, the prohibition of fraud, uh, the, the prohibition of usury, the uh, requirement for profit sharing and loss sharing, the way in which endowment assets are treated, the way in which gifts are treated. Um, and... Uh, I mean, I, I can't describe it all in, in a few minutes, but the, the, the thing is it's a very deep and cogent body of law. Now, you don't find that in other bodies of religious law. I think I'm fairly confident yeah, in saying that. You just exist. don't find it. You don't see Christian financial contact law. You don't see the, had, the hadith of Jesus, for example, the sayings of Jesus in the detail and in the number and how profound and how many they are as you get in the Islamic. Yeah, there are whole scripture. books, you know, the there, book, book on economic contracts and there's thousands, you know, thousands of hadith. And, you and know. I, I, if, if it does exist in, in Hinduism or Buddhism, then I'd like to see it because no one has shown and me. It, I do it, ask. It is an extraordinary thing in a way because in a way the prophet muhammad peace be upon him was perfectly positioned he was in a mercantile capitalist society mm. and so that's the con that's the environment within which islam flowered in a way and so that also gave an, an opportunity to early islam to address these questions it did by divine providence from our view perhaps by other people's view by chance but yeah, but, but whatever the case there is a body of law absolutely and, yeah. uh, one uh, needs to look at that law uh, as a Muslim and understand uh, how to implement it in the modern context because things have changed. We're no longer in a Bedouin society in the 7th century. And that is why you have debates about how things will uh, pan out you know, in terms of the way we regulate them, the way we look at them in the Islamic banking and finance sector, or just in our personal level. You know, people at home will be asking, how do I pay zakat in the modern context? Is it due on my share portfolio? Is it, you know, for example, they will ask yeah. questions like that. Now, I think um, that, so there is a matter of the source evidence and there is the matter of the interpretation. And of course, uh, the interpretation is, that's where our arguments can come and you know, we, we can talk about that. But as for the, the laws themselves, they address the, the, the issues of the modern world in, 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 in a very uh, profound way, I believe. For example, you, you can turn on the television today and you can see adverts for gambling practically on every break, you know, a football match in particular. Yeah. And this is something which is so deeply destructive to yeah, society. Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, so I mean, to take that and look at it, the the issue of qarar, the contract of uncertainty, of which gambling is the ultimate example, probably. That I bet you that Manchester United win, and you, you that you bet me that Liverpool win a football match, um, based on an uncertain future outcome. You either give me money, or I will give you money. There's no creation of wealth there; it's just a transfer of wealth. And I have argued quite uh, strongly, I think, uh, that. A society which makes money out of transferring existing wealth because of this entropy factor that wealth rots. We have to repair our houses. We have to make new clothes. We have to grow new food. And if we don't create new wealth, but instead transfer wealth, oh, Liverpool won, here's my 100 quid. Oh, Manchester United won, here's 100 quid of mine. Right? If we don't create new wealth, but just engage in activities that transfer existing wealth, then our society will eventually fall. Yeah, because we will not create the wealth that we need to repair our houses and repair our roads, and you know, let yeah. alone cater for the new people who are, you know, being yeah. born. Being born. Yeah. So not only is it actually just transferring wealth, but it's also doing so at the profit of the people who are running the gambling businesses. Uh, yes, again. So they 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 are setting up this huge infrastructure for running gambling, which doesn't benefit humans. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if you look at the body of Islamic contract law and you see that this is prohibited, this gambling contract on the on a 
uh, on a legal basis, which is very detailed in, in the source evidence. It's not a matter of interpretation in, uh, in, in terms of the source evidence. It's very clear that yeah, this kind of gambling yes. contract is prohibited. Then um, to implement that today, I, I would say that gambling maybe would release another 5% of the resources of the country towards really? useful thing. Uh, mm. Usury, if we were to prohibit usury, we would release another 20, 30% of Stiglitz is right, mm. you know, of resources yeah. to the benefit of society. And, and these prohibitions, on drugs, for example, or whatever it might be, if you, if you take away things that are prohibited from society, mm. then many of the questions that people ask about the problem with the economy and how can we have more wealth to you know, do the things we want to, many of those questions simply disappear because we'd find that we are devoting our activities as a nation to things that are productive and useful. Mm. And that is the direction in which Islamic finance contract law goes. It, it, it helps to channel the efforts and work of society into things that benefit people, that are not fraudulent, that are not merely parasitic or transferring wealth from one to another, but are actually benefiting society. One thing that I wanted to mention, uh, or ask you about rather, is um, zakat. You've mentioned it already as a wealth tax. So it's uh, something, for example, that Bernie Sanders advocated in the previous election cycle, that they should have a wealth tax in the United States. Elizabeth Warren did as well. Yeah. Um, Piketty. And Piketty, you know, well, yeah, you know, yes, well, Piketty, um, yeah. he, he, him also. So the, the what that is as uh, is from what I understand is uh, it's not an income tax. It's a it's a tax on existing assets um, at a rate of two point five, or, or in Islam it would be two point five percent, but it could vary anyway, even in Islamic society. And cash balances, but, yeah, and cash balances which are unused for a year. So it's a, so. It's a marginal and, wealth tax. It's well. a marginal wealth tax, yes. Yeah. It's a marginal wealth tax. And the Islam and the Quran in particular, it specifies that the wealth from zakat should be um, funneled towards certain classes yes. of people. So far from an actual fact uh, in a system of gambling or a society where the transfer of wealth actually is to the detriment of the ordinary person, the idea in Islam, from what I understand, if you correct me on this, is that it's taking existing pools of money which is locked away and which is not currently being involved in economic activity, but is forcing it to be recirculated, especially amongst the needy, to increase money velocity. And if you could talk to me about money velocity in particular, something that's so important, I think, mm -hmm. people don't understand is that that is the key to actually wealth generation, which is what you just talked it's, about. Yes, one of the keys is that yeah. if rich people have money, they tend not to spend it so much. If poor people have money, they need clothes, they need food, they need to repair their homes. So Marginal propensity each, to consume. Yes, the, mar the marginal propensity to consume is near to one. You know, they, in other words, for every one pound they get, they tend to spend the one pound pretty quickly. Um, so th that um, funneling of idle wealth into expenditure on essentials uh, is one way that the economy can be encouraged to uh, divert resources to needed uh, areas, not to gambling services, but to repairing this poor guy's home or his roof or buying clothes for his daughter or whatever. Right? Mm. Um, and yes, definitely that has a, a, an impact. And I think then if you, if you take what you're saying about zakat and you combine it with the profit and loss sharing issues of where financiers invest in people who are poor as well as people who are rich depending on their ideas yeah mm. good ideas are promoted uh Capital is fed to poorer people. Capital from zakat is fed to poorer people again, and you can see that this, um, you know, idea of 
wholeness and bringing the community together and giving everybody a slice of the pie becomes very clear. It's not it's not like a legal principle, but it is an outcome of the legal mm. principles. Yeah. And in a way, it's an anti-interest. It's like the it's like the negative of interest, isn't it? Because interest actually funnels money to the rich who sit on it and it's idle. So interest in, in actual fact increases the proportion of wealth that is idle, whereas Zakat naturally decreases yes. the proportion of wealth that's idle. Yeah, we have we actually have an article on that on rationalism.co.uk on uh, which specifically makes that point about Zakat and its difference with interest by Daniel Arif. Um, and I would just say, you know, what you said, you aren't people may think you are just kind of saying off your own back there in terms of the the money circulating but you are essentially paraphrasing an actual like direct quote of the holy quran yeah it is it is it is it is says you know the spoils of war are not only for those among you who are rich i'm paraphrasing we can put the verse up or in the link below um but it's it it's um but it's to be spent on certain classes of individuals and this the quran specifically says so that it may not circulate amongst only of those of you who are rich yeah and the the classes of the downtrodden is the kind of the orphans yeah the orphans the 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 poor the traveler the prisoners of war yeah you know, people like that. So I think, you know, that's uh, an aspect of Islam, which I think is completely forgotten. And when Piketty talks about it, or Elizabeth Warren talks yeah, about it, did... or Bernie Sanders talk about it, you know, they never actually realize that actually they, the, the root of that is ultimately has, you know, in our modern day, at least in the last 1000 years, it's been in Islam. Uh, well, they may, uh, they may know of it. <laughs> they may not They're want to say it. definitely not going to say it. Well, well you, you smiled at the Piketty thing. I think some of our viewers may be wondering why. Can you briefly I just can't. mention I, I don't. I don't want to say. Piketty and I have, have had some email correspondence, and I pointed out this matter of him uh, utilizing Zakat as, uh, and saying that he is proposing the wealth tax for the first time. And I've pointed out that Islam has a 1,300, 1,400-year history of proposing Zakat. Hmm. And, and to his credit, he said, send me the literature. And mm-hmm. I did, and, and he he sent me an email back saying thank you, uh, you know, I appreciate the um, the time taken, and this reading material is very interesting. So you know, he he certainly did engage with a lowly person like myself. So I'm very kind, I'm very grateful to his uh, email <laughs> correspondence. Excellent. So um, we talked a lot about Islamic economics and finance and why it is uh, a good, you know, very good solution to the problems that people face. Um, the question then I think people will have is, well, why haven't the Muslims done it? If it's so brilliant. Like why? Why are these uh, so many Muslim majority nations looking a lot like you know either they're kind of not very developed or if they're developed they tend to use Western type financing. So I guess my question is: Is modern Islamic banking Islamic? Mm. Well, you will know from what I've written that I'm not uh, a fan of modern Islamic banking. I I think that. You cannot have Islamic vodka. Given what I've said about um, banking, if, if banking is by nature a fraudulent thing, and I'm talking about the money-creating commercial bank, yeah. uh, then we cannot have an Islamic version of that. And I think that's an inescapable conclusion. Um, however, we do need a, pay- a payment system. I have got no problem if uh, a private company sets up a debit card uh, or keeps my valuable safe or gives me financial advice or sets up an equity portfolio for me. I have mm. no problem with that. Um, but to create money out of nothing and then uh, finance people as they, you know, I mean, I put it in inverted commas because Islamic banks uh, are saying that they're they're financing people without charging interest. My view is that they are uh, uh, charging interest but not calling it by the same name. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
And you add that to the fact that the money they're financing you with has been created out of nothing. I see the two same essential problems that we have in the secular-based banking system. Uh, And until we have uh, Islamic financial institutions, uh, let's not call them banks, let's Islamic payment processes or whatever, Mm. Um, uh, until we have Islamic payment processes that, A, do not create money from nothing, and B, when they use that money for their customers, they provide it to their customers on a way that in a way that is not interest based not a commodity contract. it could be a profit sharing contract mm. or it could be that the islamic payments company uh builds a house and then sells it to you on installments yeah right because there cannot be usury in a goods for money transaction that's a principle of islamic law if i send if i sell you a house for one hundred and fifty thousand pounds payable over 10 years that's yeah. fine that's an installment sale that's been accepted since the word dot yeah um what Islamic banks tend to do is that they say, you want to buy a house, which one is it? And you point to that one and I say, okay, I'll buy this for 100000 as long as you buy it from me for 150000 So I take that house, yeah, yeah, all contracts signed, I transfer it to you, yeah, you pay me 150000 over 10 years. What effectively has happened is that I, the bank, have given 100000 there in return for 150000 later from you. Yeah. Now, that process all bundled up in one transaction has the same cash flow reality as a loan of 100000 in return for 150000 later. And it's interesting because that's exactly what the uh, how the early Christians got around their prohibitions on interest as well, the contractum trinitus. trinitus. They, they had a system of combining <coughs> contracts in Islamic banking today. It's you promise that if I buy, that's contract number two, you will buy from me. So promise, I buy you buy three contracts bundled right. up into one creates the same cash flow reality for an Islamic bank that the interest-based bank will have. Lend a hundred thousand there in return for one hundred fifty thousand later from you. Right? Mm. Now, whatever you call this in terms of names, the cash flows are the same, and yeah. that is the uh, criticism I have of Islamic banking because. Ninety percent of what's going on is that kind of transaction. I was going to ask, is really ninety percent? I would say ninety. I mean, in some banks, I, I was working for one major Saudi bank as a trainer, telling them how these things work, which I don't have a problem with. I mean, I don't mind explaining how they work, but I just won't do them. But the <laughs> Fair thing enough. is that, that that I saw on their balance sheet that eighty percent of their business was this buy wow. and sell, right? and. Uh, just a very few, uh, most of the rest was leasing. You know, I'll buy an aircraft and lease it to you, for example. And a tiny, tiny proportion was share transactions. Profit sharing. Profit sharing. Was actually going to the ordinary person? Yeah, less than 1%. It was actually the profit sharing kind of, I'll finance your business and share the profits or loss. So, you know, less than 1% there and 80% in this this triple contract. The Christians did do the same thing. It was called the contract and Trinius. It worked slightly differently. Um, But there were essentially three contracts bundled up into one. Yeah. Each of those individual contracts, the Christian law permitted, but when you combined them, they gave the substance of an interest-bearing loan. Yes. So, you know, there's nothing new under the sun, and I've, I've written about it and said to the guys, look, you know, you can do what you like. It's a free world, but... Yeah. Don't 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 give people the impression that what you're doing is the Islamic answer to the financial problems of our time, because yeah. you're just going to lose it for us. You know, no one will have any respect for this. But more people will think, oh, Islam doesn't have the answer. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and that's not a good thing. Yeah, and in terms of the the political right and the political left, you know, you talked about this at the beginning of of our discussion here today. Um, what do the political left and the political right get wrong? 
um, and they, what do they misunderstand? The political left is all about, there's the MMT movement, for example, um, and the cryptocurrency movement is kind of straddles both political, uh, both the left and the right. So what does the left get first wrong, do you think, in understanding? Is it that they don't understand the money creation system? Because a lot of policies that come from the left are, well, let's just print the money for the ordinary per person. Yeah. And, and spend it directly on MMT the type stuff. MMT so they kind of stuff. distribute better than MMT. <laughs> Historically, that is what has happened under socialism in England, uh, in the United Kingdom, is that Labour governments did borrow very heavily and a, a lot of that money went into welfare payments uh, and to social programmes, uh, the National Health Service, things which did benefit. So you can see that, you know, on the one hand, um, the uh, progenitors and the promoters of that socialist response had a good heart. They wanted to mm. help the poor and the weak and those who'd been overlooked, especially in the post-war years. People who fought yep. for the country had to come home and have homes fit for heroes, right? Um, so I can understand where they're coming, but the solution is one has to diagnose the problem, yes, but one also has to have the right solution. And I would say that you cannot create a problem by committing a fraud, so if you say, uh, we've got this problem, poor people don't have enough wealth, we're going to defraud the money system by printing more money out of nothing, yeah. then what I would say is you may give a short-term solution to some people, but you're going to create a long-term problem, which is even bigger. You're going to in-debt those very people more. Uh, and it will come back on those people. Yeah. Um, and it did in the 1970s. We had a huge inflation. Interest rates went up to, you know... Uh, 17, 18% under the, uh, 17%, I think they peaked the bank rate under Lord Howe, uh, Chancellor Howe at that time. Um, uh, and that was in early 80 under the Tory government. That was the consequence of the socialist years of the 70s. Yeah. Um, and many businesses went bankrupt. The unions got hammered. Uh, you know, the poor person paid eventually right. for those excesses. Now, diagnosing the problem and knowing the solution inevitably requires one to have a value system and a legal system. And socialism has the value and legal system that you might say came from, well, where? From socialist, French socialists, from Marx, maybe? I don't know who, how, who he would say, you know, is the progenitor of socialism, but as a whole array of people. And the question that Muslims would ask is, were those progenitors of socialism as well-informed as the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him? Yeah. yeah. And so at the end of the day, one's value system, one's religious system is going to determine what one's solutions are. But in a yeah. way, you don't have to believe in the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, to understand the Islamic points. And we've had, in response mm -hmm. to our video we did on Islamic economics, we had a lot of people who are not Muslims saying, wow, this system is phenomenal. And it's so shocking that we don't hear more about it, actually. Mm, right. Um, because they were convinced uh, on the merits of the arguments. Yes, but they're only convinced on the merits of the arguments because we lived through the problem. Yeah, I understand. And the next problems we are going to face are problems that we haven't lived through before, maybe. Uh, and we cannot know how to solve them in advance. Mm. Understood. Right. And that is why those laws that we have uh, from long ago uh, are so useful, because many of them are laws which address problems we haven't had yet. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And if your methodology is that we have to live through a problem before coming up with a solution, <laughs> then then it's, yeah, a weaker, sad life. it's a weaker approach. Yeah. yeah. Now, that's why I say your value system is critical here. Absolutely Look, understood, you, yeah. You know, fine, you may be a... Uh, a rational non-religionist, somebody who says, look, you've got to show me why something is right before I do it. Now, uh, for, for many Muslims will say, no, that's not the case. Uh, we, we will do something because we believe the Prophet Muhammad, we believe what the Quran says, and we're going to do it, even though we don't understand why. Right? That approach can be criticised by people who are rational, secular, atheistic, because they will say, um, well, there's no proof. Right? Mm. Um, 
Whereas a Muslim say there is proof, it's in the Quran. And it's in all the things we've lived through problems for, which Islam provided solutions for. Uh, well, then Muslims will make that argument. Yeah, you see, this is why I'm saying thing, that yeah. The, yeah, one, uh, uh, as a secular economist, one, one can't pin one's flag to a particular religion. Of course not, yeah. But, but at least what they can do is if they do see the uh, merits of a lot of these points is to extract them and, and play with them and see if it can be implemented. Yes, that they can do. And yeah. I, I, would, I would encourage people to do that because I do believe that... I don't, I don't think I've said anything insane during the last hour and a half. I think, you know, gambling adverts on TV and transferring wealth and I think creating money out of nothing or uh, monopolization, decrease of variety, plastic sheds appearing. Every, these are things that no one wants. I mean, yeah. no, no one wants that. And I, 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 I honestly cannot see why anyone would argue in favor of those things, yeah. really. I mean, it's there may be libertarians who say that you can do anything you like and the system will sort itself out, but why why, why do we need to go to the lengths of letting things go wrong in order to sort them out? Yeah. Get, getting, well, well, I mean, so, I mean, that's kind of covered the socialists to a good ex extent. We're saying, <clears throat> apart from the fact that they don't have a, a defined value structure, which is kind of the major point in some ways. And, <laughs> <coughs> no, no, it's, I'm just saying that, you know, the solution we have is... It comes from a value, and they have a. So let's not say that um, theirs is a value-free solution. Yeah, right. theirs is a value-based solution, but it yeah. comes from Lenin or whoever, Marx or Trotsky Keynes or, whoever, or yeah. whoever you will you know, put forward as whatever brand of socialism. Yeah, and and so I don't think it's a question of. And I've said this before, I know, uh, of um, whether religion should interfere in economics. The question is which religion you're going to choose. Right. That's a great point. That's a great point. But on, on a more practical level as well, a lot of them just don't question the capitalist banking system and the financial system on this fundamental level that we've spoken about. And if we can show them that actually the principles that we've outlined can achieve their aims too, many of their aims, uh, in a better way than they could because they can't really achieve their aims because they exacerbate the problem by feeding into it and continuing the same banking system, then that's potentially something quite positive for them. That's kind of the left, but what I'm kind of interested in, especially recently, is the right, and especially the kind of right-wing libertarians, because I was, you know, you've referenced some of them in your book, and when we went away and read some of them, such as uh, Murray Rothbard, the, what has the government done to our money? Um, that's, you know, it's a really fantastic elucidation of what currencies really are, what is the nature of money? And they've diagnosed a lot of the problems, um, at least, yeah, quite well. Quite well, hmm. but what I've noticed, and and they're they're basically saying we need to have gold, and we have to if we have um, a token currency, it needs to be kind of related directly to the base asset. Yeah. But what I've noticed is they they fail to understand that actually interest is the key thing hmm. that delinks your base asset, your commodity, to the token. Because as soon as you have interest, you can say I'm going to keep printing more. Receipts. No, you have to. Well, yeah, you have because you can't just print gold, can you? Yeah. Yes. So, you know, whereas you can print the receipts, as you've said before, you can print the receipts, and that's a necessity. So, as soon as you have interest, you have a delinking of your token or your mm -hmm. currency from the kind of base asset. Mm -hmm. So they're railing against this kind of massive delinking. The fact that now that gets to such an extent, you without ignore. addressing the cause. Yeah, yeah, without actually addressing the cause. So it's interesting mm -hmm. how the kind of the left and the right both have parts of the picture, but, but not the full picture. Well, it may be because of this libertarian streak that they believe people should have the right to do anything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I've seen some <laughs> of these libertarians arguing in favor of uh, an entirely private legal system.
Yeah, oh, really? Where, where laws are made privately and so forth, you know, because, you know, the, the good judges who people trust will eventually predominate and the bad judges oh, that nobody trusts, no one will go to. Well, famously, right. the Wild West was a, was a very just and equal <laughs> society. <laughs> well, I mean, libertarianism and, and free markets can be taken to such an extent. Uh, they can go yeah. to anything. They've, in this country, uh, you know, gone quite far compared to where they were 50 years ago under the socialism that we, yeah. you know, have such a, uh, a sort of... Uh, if you like, uh, you know, free private companies have taken over many functions that the state used to fulfill. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, that may not be so bad in some cases. Uh, I mean, the telephones work now. Uh, they didn't when BT was a nationalized company. You go down the street and one in 10 phones. We've had serious work. internet well, issues with BT in this well, place. No, so I do well, not want to hear uh, BT <laughs> spoken about in a positive I, light. I, I, think, I think the ratio is better than what it was when I was a kid growing up. You really couldn't find a telephone box that worked. There just was no incentive for, 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 for state-owned enterprises in many areas. But maybe BT is not the best example, but... Um, uh, there were many things that weren't working very well. Right? Yeah. Um, and so, they, uh, and, and the key is that, of course, there's no prescription on on the balance between private and public sector. Um, uh, in Islamic law, there is a kind of set of basic rules which one follows, and one sees what one gets as a result. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't say that you know, half the economy should be yeah. in the public. No, it's, all, it's up to your flavour. The the, there are restrictions on ownership of natural resources, for example. Private yeah. ownership of uh, natural resources are heavily restricted. Yeah. You, know, you can't just have some guy who happens to wake up on top of the only <laughs> oil field in the country and you know, buy, um, and there is zakat on, on natural mineral wealth and, and, and crops, which you know, so so this sort of impinges on private wealth and, uh, and it effectively and, regulates it for it, it public best, it for and, bestic use. And uh, the the Caliph Omar, peace be um, may I be pleased with him. You know, he famously would. Um, seize land from people who are using it idle and, and were not not doing anything with it. Um, so after three years, if they had not used the land that they had been given, then it was recycled and it was given to somebody who was going to use it productively. Right. So so there you can see balances on both sides yes. uh, against the private <coughs> interests and against the public interests in the sense of the public sector interests. There's a balance that produces an economy which has a flavor of something that you might see in the socialist world and something you might see in the capitalist world, but doesn't have the uh, excesses of either. Hmm. And I think that you, if you look at the world post-45, the pendulum has swung from you know, the, 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 the capitalist order through to the socialist order, back to the capitalist order in terms of finance capitalism and large multinational corporations. And, and that pendulum will probably swing. But now the question is, where does it swing? You know, it can swing in many different dimensions. Uh, what happened here with Corbyn is that we had a very reactionary policy going back to 1970s nationalisation, which I, is a kind of dogma, a value system saying that, uh, you know, uh, certain companies, certain activities must be in the public domain. Now, we have some of that in Islamic law. Uh, but we don't have all of it. You know, we, why, why were 10 or 15 very successful British motor manufacturers amalgamated into a very unsuccessful company called British Leyland, which went bankrupt with the result that we have no British car manufacturers left now, 50 years later, right? It was just dogma. 
But in a way, it doesn't really matter whether the left or the right comes into power because the underlying malaise of money printing and money creation continues unabetted. Right. This is one. This is one thing which remains in place, whichever flavour of uh, uh, government. And so they're really just moving around chess pieces on the board, but not actually changing or overturning uh, it, yes, the board entirely. I think uh, then, to an extent, it's rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. To an extent, yeah. uh, if the boat is sinking, if if the environment is becoming unsustainable. Uh, if climate change is running away with us, then... The big uh, questions uh, remain the same at the, the end big, of the day. The and inflation is continuing rampantly. And, you know, to such an extent that the currency becomes debased so much that we lose... It's always remind, funny, you know, we used to have shillings and things, mm. you know, in this country. And now we have pounds. Yes. Well, well the pound was the highest form. And the then pound it, buys what a shilling used to buy. Yeah. Exactly. And to, in a way, what I'm trying to point out is that the inflation happened so much that nothing was priced in shillings anymore, such that shillings became a, an old current. They don't exist anymore. Yes. Well, you can hardly get anything for a pound now. Well, <laughs> exactly. And and over time, that's exactly right. You know, £10 will be the minimum, in which case they'll yes. have to reset it to being a pound. And probably they will. And probably they will. Well, you know, uh, I mean, that, that's a really good point, because that what you're saying about the, the, the actual problem continues on probably brings us nicely to probably the last area of our discussion, which is about cryptocurrencies and gold and and the nature of the currencies. Because a lot of people will say, yeah, yeah, we get it. Yeah, the fiat currencies, that's the problem. It's money creation. They would have you know outlined it with regards to interest. But they'll say, yeah, fiat currencies are the problems. What we need is crypto. Um, and I won't even try and recount all their arguments in mm -hmm. favor of it. But what's your... Um, What's your what's your take on that to say you know let this we the problem is the central banks and they're printing the money and what we need are are these are distributed networks of people creating currency and you everyone can be a, a part owner and and that's how we're going to release everyone right well I think again there's the diagnosis and then there's the solution and on the diagnosis front uh, it's certainly true that if you have an account with one of the major commercial banks uh, and you're a disliked person um, then there is someone in a central bank somewhere in the world who can press a button and cancel your wealth. Uh, and people who are in favor of cryptocurrency say that this is a system where that doesn't happen. It can't happen. There's no one there who's going to press a button and your wealth will suddenly evaporate or be frozen so that you can't use it. Um, and they are railing, therefore, against central bank power and centralization of authority over money and wealth. And that is a, a diagnosis of a problem, which is correct. There's a central bank. There are a few large private banking firms. And if they don't like you, then they can come up with some reason to close your account, yeah. cancel your wealth, stop you getting access to it, and so on. And <clears throat> as an issue of basic justice, uh, it should not be the case that somebody in an unseen place somewhere who you've never met should be able to just take your wealth because they don't like your politics, for example, or they don't like your nationality. Or your journalistic activity. Or your journalistic activity, or whatever it is. Julian Assange. So that's <laughs> a correct diagnosis of an issue that central banks have too much power and therefore we need an alternative, mm. right? Mm. The alternative now, cryptocurrency. Uh, I would say that cryptocurrency is something that uh, is um, it's a record on a database. If I had a record on a database that I own gold uh, in a bank vault in Zurich, for example, which I do, I have a card, a debit card, which has some gold, not a huge amount, um, but that gold is in a vault in Zurich. And if I use my MasterCard, uh, from this supplier, I can tap it uh, at a, uh, a shop anywhere in the world, and it will pay for my produce with gold via database entry. My mm. database entry will reduce by the amount of gold that it takes to pay that supermarket in their local currency. Now, mm. I don't have a problem with owning gold via a database entry held on that debit card. 
right? However, in the case of cryptocurrency, the database entry is the asset. And for me, that's a big problem. Say that again. Explain that. Uh, the database right. entry is, is the, the asset. asset. Right. So uh, if, I, if I own a house, for example, um, there is a database entry at the land registry which says that I have title to a house. Yeah. Right. Um, so there's the database entry and there's the house. Now, the reason it's important not just to have the database entry is because I want to live in the house. <laughs> <laughs> I can't live in a database entry. <laughs> right? That's critical. The house is what provides me with the use yeah. and the value, not the database entry. The database entry only perfects my ownership of the house. Now, hmm. if I have a database entry saying that I own gold, the gold is the thing that perfects my value. It protects me. Right? Uh, let me give you another example. No, I understand. I'll um, yeah, I... I give you one more example. If I have an army, I can fight and defend myself against an invading force. Right. If I only have a database entry of an agreement <laughs> with my neighbour over the over the sea that they won't attack me, I don't have any guarantee. Mm. Right. There are things that database entries and written records cannot do for you. Yeah. That only a physical asset can do. And I am of the belief, unless someone shows me a very very good argument, that money has to have a physical dimension. Mm. Uh, I don't believe the law should enforce that, but I do believe people should be given the freedom of choice. And if they were given the freedom of choice, they would choose gold and silver. And I will tell you uh, one example of why they are not given that choice. <coughs> Charter Article 10 of the IMF, for any member of the IMF, requires that that country's government cannot make gold a medium of payment mm. if it wishes to continue its membership of the IMF. And I will ask why, in a free society, does such a law exist? When, when gold and silver have been used yeah. as the major currencies for yes. humanity. Why? Why suddenly are we prohibited from doing something that so many people would choose to do? And what's your answer to that? Um, because it's an essential thing to maintain the fraudulent fiat money system that we have with commercial banks, that the alternative that most people would choose is denied them. Okay. And so with respect to cryptos, in a way, the database entry is not enough. It can't be money in of itself. It's still belief-based. Because it's whether you, um, it doesn't have intrinsic value as well. Yeah. Uh, it's a record on a database system that we don't really know who created it. We don't really know where it is. We don't know whether anyone has a backdoor to it. And tomorrow it could just be worthless, nothing. That will never happen to gold. I see your point. Never. Gold in the back of your pocket will never become worthless. It may reduce in what it can buy in terms of its purchasing power may increase. But it, you will, and I, I, I think there are very things I say never, but I believe people will never wake up and find that their gold is worthless. I do believe they will wake up one day and find that it can't buy much. Hmm. And I believe that they will wake up one day and find that it's the only valuable thing in, uh, uh, in society because there are hadith on that basis. Yeah, that's correct. Um, but I do not believe that you will wake up and find that it just doesn't exist anymore. That can happen to any cryptocurrency. What about the criticism of gold that, you know, you can just, you know, you can't print it, but you can go dig some up. So isn't it kind of similar? Uh, yes, right. So uh, on this, uh, we have to uh, recognize, first of all, that on Bitcoin alone, which is only one of the cryptocurrencies, that 
the amount of electrical power that's required to sustain this system is now equal to that of a country like Germany, I'm told now. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a huge amount of resource consumption, hmm. um, which I think is uh, not much less or more than the amount of effort which is going into the global mining trade for gold and silver. However, uh, what we can go further and say is that the cost of bailing out um, the uh, United States uh, from the uh, financial crisis of 2007 and 8 was several times the amount of cost of mining of gold and silver globally. Right? So if you want to compare the existing fiat money system mm. to the system of gold mining, yeah, if it's a waste of money to mine gold and have gold as our money system, then it's 10 times that waste of money to bail out the American banking system in just one crisis. Mm. Right? And you add all the other countries which bailed out their banking systems in that year. Yeah? So maybe 50-fold mm. the cost of mining gold. So uh, one has to put things in perspective. It may be that Bitcoin is safer uh, from, from acts of freezing and uh, preemption and cancellation that central banks might inflict on you um, as a, a fiat money holder. Maybe, yes, Bitcoin is or cryptocurrency is free from that kind of money. Maybe, we don't know. Uh, but the cost of sustaining it is substantial, and I would say that it's probably of the same order of the cost of mining gold uh, and silver. And for me, uh, the fact that gold and silver has a physical presence which cannot be taken away from you, uh, except by force in your own private domain, um, then uh, I, I go for gold uh, as a basis for our monetary system. I go for that system of production because it has what the cryptocurrency advocates say about their own cryptocurrency, that there is a factor cost in producing it. It can't just be created out of nothing. Gold has that too, um, but it is a regulatory... Because you need to buy tractors and, and workers to dig it out of the ground. Yes, that's right. I mean, and, and this balances the price level and the monetary, uh, the, the creation of money in a society, in fact, because if, if you have a shortage of money, the prices are low because people can't buy things. So your yep. tractors and your shovels are cheap. So you go, you buy them and you dig gold and then gold is converted into money at the state mint. However you organize that system, there are various ways, but it will be done. And money supply will increase and then prices will increase and your tractors and shovels will become more expensive. And so the amount of gold you can dig with them isn't worth it. So, uh, you know, new gold doesn't come into circulation so much. So we have a, a kind of reduction of gold uh, relative to yeah. the economic uh, the dimensions of the economic system and gradually then money supply reduces and uh, relative to production and prices of capital goods decrease again and now it becomes profitable to buy capital goods and mine gold so money supply and, increases and, while, and that kind of you know balance is, is something which automatically and this is an, an important point it automatically according to the the price signal balances the creation of money in society because you have this factor cost of production as the cryptocurrency people say about their system, the, the, the commodity money systems have that. Uh, and it, the reason it's very important is because at the moment, the creation of money is totally arbitrary. It's a bunch of guys in a central bank who sit around a table and say, shall we produce some more? Mm, yeah, okay. <laughs> and where is the I think the answer is always, yeah, okay, as well. <laughs> uh, sometimes they want to reduce it. So we may come across... 
yeah. uh, you know, scenario in the next few years where the banking yeah. system decides to contract money supply. Well, they're going to raise the interest rates, aren't they? Uh, or, or, or whichever method they do. Mm. Uh, but, but the issue is that if, you know, we, we say we're in a free market economy. If we're in a free market economy, why in this table of men sitting in a central bank arbitrarily, yeah. privately, without a, pri without a price signal? Why do they have the power to suddenly determine the most pervasive price in the economy, you know, the most pervasive signal in the economy, which is the interest rate on money, mm. right? Mm. Where, where's the free market there? Why which suddenly will, doesn't it apply anymore? Which will ironically increase the money supply in the long term and, and, and therefore and so actually and, increase inflation, yes, not decrease it, actually. And they, and they have the right to decide and encourage uh, the creation of more money, both by the central bank and by the commercial banks. So all of this happens without any price signal at all. So... The, the the arguments here, I can see why cryptocurrency advocates will say, yes, we have a factor cost of production, we're free from manipulation and acts of freezing and so forth. Mm. But the question really is, uh, which is the safest place to store your wealth? And if you ask that as a personal question, uh, you, you can ask it uh, in terms of profitability for sure, which is the most profitable place to get. It definitely has been Bitcoin and, and other cryptocurrencies over the last couple of years. It's zoomed up in value. But the safest place to get, and in the long run, where is the safe? I would still myself go for commodity money. Well, thank you very much, Tarek, for uh, the insight that you've given us and for the information that you've provided. Um, where can people find more of your work? What would you recommend they do to find out more about your perspectives on things? Uh, well, they can email me, I guess. Uh, I mean, I don't want to be overwhelmed. I don't know how popular your channel is. I would not be giving you email out on this video. Oh, well, okay. That's <laughs> no. fine. Uh, my books, uh, unfortunately, they're, they're out of production, the problem with interest. I might have to reprint that. Uh, how ironic, think, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah it's, <laughs> He's got to print more of his books. <laughs> More after nothing, yeah, make some money. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, if they can do it, if they can do it, I can. You can do it exposing them. Uh, there are online articles at islamic-finance.com. Uh, I don't maintain that anymore. I've had to sort of earn a living, you know, and pay for feeding my family and all that. So I do, it's, it's really an archive now. But islamic-finance.com, you'll yeah. find some articles about this from way back when. Well, thank you very much, Tarek. And to you guys at home, thank you very much for watching. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel. We'll very much appreciate it. If you like this, this discussion, leave us a like and comment below on any, you know, any issues that you had with it. Do you disagree with things? Do you really agree with things? Has it been enlightening for you? Or do you think that we have some, some problems that we need to iron out? If so, you know, let us know. We're going to have a discussion in the comments as well. Also check out our website, rationalreligion.co.uk. If you're really interested in the economics part of it, go to the topic index at the top of rationalreligion.co.uk, scroll down to economics, and we've got all of our articles and our videos listed there, um, everything that we've done on economics. So until next time, thank you very much and peace be upon you. Peace be on you.